Welcome to Inspired Insights, where we share our conversations with industry experts as we give insight into workforce trends and changes impacting HR and financial professionals. We will cover everything from employee engagement to compliance and regulations impacting your workforce success. Welcome to the Inspired Insights Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Gorman. I'm a sales marketing professional with over 20 years working and leading sales teams in the human capital management industry. And today I'm joined by my co-host and good friend, Jeff McEwen. Hey, thanks, Brian. Yeah, this is Jeff, and I've been in HR in a variety of spaces and capacities for since 99, so a little over 20 years myself. Glad to be here and looking forward to today's guest. Me as well. Looking forward to bringing on Alicia Campbell. Alicia is a four-time award-winning, best-selling author and a highly respected strategic diversity, equity, and inclusion leader with a decade of experience that encompasses all facets of human resource management and DEI. From executing successful multi-million dollar workforce diversity and optimization projects to spearheading inclusive employee culture initiatives, Alicia has truly seen and done it all in the DEI space. Her passion for the industry has led her to start her own HR consultancy and strategy agency called Culture Shift HR. And as founder and principal, Alicia uses her business acumen to help companies utilize and engage their best talent while creating purposeful, diverse, and inclusive work environments that help businesses grow and thrive. Welcome, Alicia, to the podcast. Great to have you. Hey, Brian. Hey, Jeff. Thank you so much for having Welcome. me. Welcome. Yeah. We're Brian, excited. we're gonna we, um... we're gonna need to get some less accomplished guests on here, Brian. The intros are just getting too long. <laughs> yes. <laughs> this is good. This is Bob. Bob hasn't done much. Welcome to the show, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is Bob's first time on a Zoom meeting. <laughs> yeah. Super excited that to have you, Alicia, and really wanted to get started with our first question. Now, DEI has become more of a pillar within the organizational culture over the past few years, but you know, those of our listeners who may need a refresher or want to know more about you and your work, maybe give us an overview of the importance of DEI in the workplace. Like yeah, what absolutely. DEI stands for. Or what it all yeah, what it stands for. Too, that, <laughs> yeah. that'd, be, that'd be great. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a great, great question. Great way to start off. So yeah, DEI, also known as diversity, equity, and inclusion, is really about helping to focus and create an equilibrium of your workforce from a diverse, equitable, and inclusive perspective. I mean, really since the past couple of years with DEI becoming a more of a, of a hot topic within the workplace. Other names come up like JEDI, Justice, Equity, Diversity, Inclusion. Mm -hmm. There's also DEIB, the B standing for belonging. And there's probably a couple more acronyms that I can't remember off the top of my head, but they all focus on making sure that you're creating equitable practices to make inclusive change for your diverse workforce. And with the work that I do with my clients, I really come in to help them, one, assess where their DEI kind of culture is right now. So I have my own methodology called the 4As method, which is an audit assessment action plan and administration, which really brings them full circle in really to assess and align where their current DEI culture is today and help them create an action plan and roadmap to get it to where they want it to be over the next 12 
12 to 24 months. And so not only through the audit do I help support my clients, but I also do training, workshops, leadership coaching, and, and mentoring. We also do fractional head of DEI and fractional head of HR services as well, which has been incredible support for my startups and scale-ups who no longer want to wear the HR hat, but really need someone to come in with that expertise, help create and lay the foundations for a strong HR culture, programs, policies, frameworks, and really help to begin to upskill and help to support their growing employee workforce. So we do it all here at College of Shift HR. And I, I started the business really from my own experiences. I, you know, had, you know, at that point, about seven years experience in, in HR and DEI. And I was feeling incredibly frustrated with the lack of impact I was having. And it wasn't from my own doing. It was just the organization wasn't in a state to make the change they wanted to make. And so I had all these great ideas, all these things I wanted to do. But unfortunately, they weren't getting very far. And so my thought was, I really want to work with clients that understand and really want to do the work in order to make a better workplace culture. And I needed that outlet to really be very present in my life. And so built Culture Shift HR in 2018 off the side of my desk and really only went full time in the business last year. Like then I went from a, me, a me, solopreneur to now a team of six servicing clients all over North America, Canada, US and the UK and EMEA and really being that strategic thought partner and leader for them from the HR and DEI space. So it's been an incredible ride and super excited for, you know, what's to come. But uh, yeah, that's kind of what's in the bag. <laughs> wow. That's amazing. Fantastic. In other words, what you're saying is you've been busy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Very, very really busy. busy. <laughs> very that's busy. great. That's great. Well, this is certainly a very hot topic and I'm sure you've had no shortage of clients that are looking for help in this area. Yeah. And the demand continues to grow. It, it does definitely come in ebbs and flows, I will say, given, you know, the market right now, a lot of organizations are taking a little bit of a step back. And so we have seen a little bit of a retraction, but the desire and the need still stands. And so we're seeing, you know, the work um, of creating more inclusive workplaces to be a little bit more project-based versus retainer or kind of long-term contract-based. So working with clients to really make sure the work doesn't fully stop but helping to provide different solutions and options so that they can continue to move the needle forward, but also feel like they're being mindful of the business as well. Mm. Good. I just saw a meme and it's been around before. And, and I think I saw this one on LinkedIn, but I think Facebook has it. And I, I just want to share it and get your thoughts on it and see if you feel it's, it's a fair representation, but then ask you if you have some other visuals you can give us that are helpful. But this one was a trying to explain the difference between equity and equality and it was people standing behind a fence and they gave everybody a step of the same height and said this is equality but the short people still couldn't see over the fence so then in the next one they made a step big enough so everyone could see at least a foot above the fence mm. so that required different size steps but it put everybody at the same eye level so how do you feel about it? is that an accurate metaphor and do you have any others you, you think are good Yes, that is a perfect metaphor, Jeff, and I'm very, very familiar with that meme. And the reason is because when we, and this comes up a lot in my training, because a lot of people say, well, why don't we just treat everybody the same? Why don't we just, you know, keep everything fair that way? And I mean, I'm guilty of that too. I grew up, my mom telling me, you know, treat everybody the same, you know, respect everybody, be nice to everybody. And of course, those are, those are great principles to, you know, grow up by and things of that nature. But what it doesn't really cover is to understand that everyone is different and that it's okay that everyone is different. And then even more importantly, because everyone is different, they all have different needs to reach to that level of equality. And so that's where the 
equity piece is so important because it, it, and you said it so well, Jeff, everyone can have the same tools, but based on my needs, based on your needs, based on Brian's needs, it's going to get us to different levels of being able to fully participate in the way that we want to participate. And so where equity comes in is it recognizes, okay, this one tool isn't going to give everyone the same type of experience. So we maybe have to give a little bit more training to Jeff. Um, maybe Brian's good because he's used this before. And Alicia, she's a pro, so she doesn't need anything. But yet all of our experience then becomes the same through the equity piece and how that comes in. And so when we begin to think about it from that lens, we realize, okay, hold on. A one-size-fits-all solution isn't going to work. I have to be mindful of the different elements of diversity within my team so that I can create equitable practices to then lead to an inclusive culture. Because if we miss, if we take out the equity piece, there's nothing to bridge together the elements of diversity and creating that piece of inclusion. So if you look at the graph or the, the photo, you see that once equity came in, everybody was able to join the baseball game. Everyone was able to fully participate in the fanfare of what that photo depicted. And so mm -hmm. equity is really that glue that brings the diversity and the inclusion pieces together and really, I would say, activates it in a really, really powerful way. Another kind of photo I've seen is a family. There's a family of four and they're going bike riding and they each have an adult size bike. But then you have a daughter who is in the wheelchair. You have a son who's only, you know, three feet tall. You have a six foot dad and a, and a five foot mom. And you could see that they're each all very uncomfortable, except one person on the bikes. But yet they all have <laughs> access to a bike. And even one of the children isn't even able to ride the bike. Mm -hmm. But then when you look at the equity piece, they each have a bike to the size so that they can all enjoy the bike ride as a family. Mm -hmm. And so I love that as well, because it really does show what the differences look like. And when we're mindful of that piece, then everybody can have really that opportunity to participate in the fullest way. Mm, that's a good picture too. I like that image. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So one of the objectives of DE&I initiatives, of course, is to create more diversity and to promote diversity, which in earlier forms, of course, didn't have quite as eloquent of names and, and all these acronyms and stuff, but it was still something that, you know, ever since, you know, Civil Rights Act and other things we've been trying to, to promote. And of course, one of the big hurdles has been that business owners, for lack of a better description, have been reluctant and, and there've been all kinds of things. We've had guests on to talk about unconscious bias and there's certainly even conscious bias and these things that caused people to just hire their own, right? So now what we're saying is, is if equity is giving everybody their own size bike and their own size step, now there's a real cost to my diversity. So how do you explain to people that there's value that offsets that cost. Because now, you know, it used to be it was sort of just guessed, oh, it's going to be more hassle if I hire all these other people. Now you've got a number. Hey, it's really going to cost me more. Hmm. Mm -hmm. I love that question. The What it really comes down to is that the cost of bringing equity into the equation is going to be less than the lack of return on investment or the lack of engagement or the lack of creativity, innovation, et cetera, that you're going to get from that employee. So to break it down, when you think about it, if you want to create an, even if, even if we put DEI to the side for a moment, just in general, we just think about workplace culture and we're trying to create a culture where everybody 
We want everyone to be engaged and we want everyone to be participating at 100% of their capacity. If someone in the team isn't able to engage and activate in, this, in the fullest way that you want them to because they need an, a support tool, because they need a training, because they need to have their workspace modified or the way that they are, are connecting to the rest of the team in a different way, you are nowhere near going to get 100% out of that person and, and achieve that ROI that you really are striving for from everybody in the workplace. So you're actually doing yourself a disservice by just saying, oh, you know, forget about the equity piece and just give everybody the same thing because the same thing isn't going to serve everybody the same way. And so when you think about the cost of, you know, what, it, what in whatever scenario you're creating the equity in, think about the cost of hiring and not getting a high performance employee. Think about the cost of recruitment, the cost of onboarding, and not just monetary costs, but think about the time costs as well, the opportunity costs there too. Think about the turnover that's going to happen. Think about the division and friction that's going to be created in the workplace culture that may affect other high performing individuals as well. And so it's so much more than dollars and cents. It really comes down to if I care about my workforce and people being the biggest asset for any organization, the number one thing you want to be thinking about as a manager, as a leader, is what are the tools, systems, and frameworks I need in place to make sure everybody can perform at 100% of their capacity while working as an employee here? And what barriers, what frameworks, what systems, what challenges can I remove so they can be 100% more than more often than not? And when you start to frame it that way, and we just start to, even if you want to think about it from a nuts and bolts perspective of people being assets or people having a return on investment, when you think about our own personal investments, we always try to think about how can I get the most out of this return? How can I get the most out of XYZ? It's the exact same thing when you think about people. And if you, when you begin to frame it that way, the question of what do I need to do no longer really becomes a question. It becomes a, how do I begin to do? How do I begin to create more equity? How do I begin to enhance the engagement, enhance the productivity, et cetera? And so I think when we frame it that way, it really becomes more of a, a switching the, the dialogue and the parameters of how that really comes to life. Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. And I and I wish it was true that so many business owners and leaders were more driven by the holistic approach you said of making people the most they can be. But for the most part, I think, unfortunately, my maybe it's a skeptic in me that people are still looking at the numbers. And, and I think what you hit on in there that's great is that that amount you'll invest helps you to get out that 100% because you're paying 100% to the person. You're paying for 100%. But if you're only getting 50, 60, 70%, and for this relatively small additional investment, you can get to 100%, it really does pay off. Mm. Absolutely. And then even when you think about the dividend of that from not only just from a workplace culture perspective, but like from a referral, like your employees are your best tool for hiring your hiring pipeline. So the experience you have is what they're going to speak about to their friends, to their other networks, et cetera, which is also going to help from a pipeline perspective. When you think about succession planning and how you think about the growth and maturity of your employees, they're going to be more invested. They're going to be able to you know, be able to climb the ladder, be able to go into more corporate spaces or more corporate roles or senior level roles. Um, but all that starts with how are we supporting the employee where they are today? And the problem with, you know, the reason a lot of leaders get stuck in the question that you raised up is because they're not thinking beyond 
the time that the employee is hired. You know, mm-hmm. ideally, I mean, you know, with the pandemic and everything, we've seen everything from, you know, massive exoduses to quiet quitting and everything else in between. But when you actually think about the lifespan of an employee in the workplace, it's usually between 18 to 24 months. But when we think about the opportunity of how we could take that individual, not just where they are today, but where we want them to be as an organization, given their skills, talent, expertise, et cetera, and how they can impact the organization on higher levels as they grow and mature in their position, the amount of growth is exponential. It's absolutely incredible. And you're going to have a higher retention rate. You're going to have a better culture, more sustainability, and really begin to create a a workplace that people want to spend time in. People want to spend, you know, years at their career in. So it really starts to have a ricochet effect and be funneled in so many different other elements from an employee engagement life cycle experience. So Alicia, as you were talking, I was just thinking it's in your, your, your company's name, right? Culture Shift HR. And is it simply just companies that get this right? It's just part of their culture, right? They're just, it's ingrained in what they do. What have you seen companies do or put into practice that allows them to really, you know, do DE&I really well? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, one, it's definitely something that is that you see from the top to the bottom. And, and what I mean by that is leadership is 100% engaged, invested, and connected to the DEI culture within the organization to the point that it's DEI begins to touch everything in the business. So very often, more often than not, DEI will start within the HR department. So because it has to do with people. And so usually they'll look at hiring initiatives, they'll look at training, they'll look at maybe like an ERG or an affinity group system, you know, things, things of that nature. But that's really like level zero, you know, DEI and bringing it into the workplace. As the organization matures in its DEI framework, what's really supposed to be happening is it becomes less of a checkbox item or a we must do item to to how can the item and it begins to really evolve and spread into all other areas of the organization. So for example, looking at IT infrastructure, looking at how the, there's bias in our software, looking to the accessibility of our software from a neurodivergent perspective, looking at our recruitment software and if there's any coded bias in those tools that help us bring in the right talents. We begin to look at operating processes and procedures to make sure that everyone has access and opportunity and in different ways so they can fully engage. Even from the smallest thing of how to join a Zoom meeting, is there closed Mm -hmm. captioning? Is there an opportunity for someone to watch this at a later time in case um, they have different auditory um, needs and requirements? It goes to thinking about our marketing and our audience and and the consumer we're trying to reach. Are we really understanding how us not being diverse and inclusive inside is creating an outward appearance to the rest of our market? Are we connected to our market from a diverse perspective, whether it's from the advertising we use to the to the words that we use in our copy to the different mediums that we utilize to engage and, and entice buyers to buy our product or service when you think about it and I mean the list can go on but when you think about it it all has a role to play but if you're not building it from the inside first you, you're nowhere near ready to start to have that externally as well and I think that's where organizations get stuck is they really don't see how this is going to affect their bottom line. Like, I mean, of course, we hear the statistics regarding employee engagement and, you know, better ROI on sales and, you know, all those other kind of key metrics, which are, of course, very important. But if you even take it down to, you know, the very foundations of just a business, connecting with the market and servicing them through your product or service, that 100% in today's globalized market has everything to do with DEI, everything. If you are not connecting with your diverse audience, if they don't 
feel like they this is a brand they can trust, a service that they can believe in. If they feel like, you know, you're out of touch, you have lost that buyer, you have lost that perspective. And so I think if organizations really begun to see how through the markets that they're in and the demographic that they serve, that they would begin to really begin to look at DEI from a totally different lens because there's incredible opportunity right now to continue to engage more diverse markets, more diverse individuals and audiences for your products or service if you took the time to view the data through the lens of DEI and begin to then build in these practices that will then retransform and really elevate your marketplace share and what that begins to look like from a market stance perspective. And so it's it's really phenomenal when organizations get to that stage because it's no longer just something we do. It's who we are. Everything from top to bottom gets looked at from a DEI lens and that gets then fed into all aspects and facets of the business for today and its growth trajectory. Do you, in the work you're doing, do you find there's an average size where, of a, and by size, I mean number of employees, where this starts to kick in? I mean, are you seeing this at the 5, 10, 15 employee level company? Or are we looking at the 100, 150, 200? I'm sure there's no one answer, but it feels to me like as I, my own experience, it's the bigger companies that have more emphasis on this. It, is that true? Or are we seeing it drip all the way down to the, the smallest companies? We are seeing it drip all the way down to the smallest companies. In fact, culture shift, 90% of our clientele are startups in the tech space. And my smallest, when I first started with them, I think had 10 employees and we were talking and they brought me on specifically to talk about DEI and inclusive culture. So there's no, I would say 10 is probably a good spot because if you're at five, five to seven, you probably got your founders. You probably have a couple, you know, senior level individuals, you know, kind of just trying to get that MVP off the ground, et cetera. But once you reach 10, you probably have some, a little bit of hierarchy or at least some type of leveling taking place. And as soon as that is happening, you want to be thinking about this. Now, are you going to do the same activities, the same budget, the same activation as a one, two, 300 you know, person and work workplace? No, absolutely not. The size difference and budget and opportunity and access is going to be, it's going to be different. However, to look at your business from a ter- internally and externally from a DEI perspective, to get training, to build in the frameworks, the foundation, that can happen at any stage. And mm-hmm. then from there, how you build up is really dependent on how much more time, energy, and really investment, because it does cost dollars and cents to get things to a certain level. That's when you'll start to see how an, a larger organization will maybe have a different trajectory than those who are more in the startup kind of phases of their business ventures. But yeah, I would say the earlier you you could start this the better and leaders that understand that leaders that understand the importance of an inclusive culture because they see the vision five years down the road that they're going to yeah i might be 10 people today but in five years we're going to be 150 they know what that looks like and how every individual especially at the early stages is going to be impacting a key piece of their product service offering the market and those key elements they get it and they want to build that in right from the get-go i think organizations who are a little bit larger who you know haven't had you know done it from zero to where they are today, there's still opportunity. But what they need to start thinking about at that point is knowing that DEI becomes a transformation. It's a transformational exercise. Because again, we're not doing things as status quo. We're not doing things as business as usual. We have to think things differently. We have to say, is this including all the voices it needs to include? If I am an organization that focuses on women's product, and there's not a single female voice or a woman identified voice in the room, that's a problem. Because we're Mm -hmm. clearly missing a key element element and aspect that's going to hugely impact the way we show up and how we activate within our market space. And so it becomes a way of literally 
you know, kind of undoing and unlearning the habits that we've accrued and beginning to put in those transformational pieces. So the way that it comes to life will may look the same, but behind the scenes, it could be incredibly different when you're not starting from the, you know, day one of your business. So one of the things that we had, one of the things we had on here to cover was transparency in compensation, which is a hot topic right now in, in a lot of HR circles. So just again, for those on the audience on the call that maybe aren't familiar, can you give us get a bit of an overview of what that even means, what, what transparency in general means, and then how does it tie into DE&I? Yeah, that's a great question. So transparency or pay transparency, comp transparency, it's a philosophy in which that the pay structure of roles, not of individuals, of roles is is visible and is accessible to those internally and externally to the organization. And so in, in, you know, in, in plain language, what it means is that if I'm hiring a project coordinator, I know internally the range of a project coordinator from, you know, 45 to 55,000. And I can know that information, whether I'm an employee or whether I'm someone who's applying for any project role. And so it's transparency of the pay bands, it's transparency of the Pay, uh, compensation philosophy of the organization, and also transparency of how to move and navigate those pay systems as an employee of the business. And before and you move so- into the next thing, tell me or tell all of us, because I've always been curious about this myself. You mentioned that this is visible outside the organization too. So what's the mechanism that you see people doing to make this happen? Are they putting it on their website? Are they making mm-hmm. it a, a paper you can request and have net sent to you? They're putting an ad in the paper. <laughs> How are they yeah. getting this out there so people do know what those bands are in the public? Right. Yeah, that's a great question. So the way that we're seeing it right now, actually, even before getting to that, to take a little bit of a step back, there are levels to pay transparency. And what and so, for example, there's organizations today that you can I the name is escaping me, but I can maybe find it and send it to to you both later to share as a resource. There's organizations today, startups that literally you go to about us page it's probably a smaller startup which is the example that pops in my mind anyways you know a team of 20 you see the person a photo of who they are you see their name their role and where they live and literally how much they are earning so there is organizations that literally have their whole employee roster right on their website and full transparency of what they're getting and then also what everyone else is getting in the organization too all the way from the ceo down to you know an intern level role now i would say that's on the very transparency if I had a scale, the very transparent, you know, element of the scale. Now, when people or, you know, HR professionals or leaders think about pay transparency, they think, oh my God, I have to go, you know, to the nth degree. That is not the case. There's other ways that if we kind of, you know, took the scale down a bit to still be transparent. So, and meaning that we share compensation on job descriptions, we share compensation on our job boards. And there's also, because of that, we everyone internally knows what the payment range is as well as externally. So right now we're seeing it come to life from a job description, a hiring, you know, bulletin perspective. But what organizations need to kind of come to terms with, and I really tried to prepare my clients for this as best as possible, is that before you even get to pay, I mean, now it's getting, you know, mandated from from different legislations, but before you go from even sharing externally or internally compensation bans, you have to do an internal compensation audit first. Because more often than not, you probably have two or more people in a role that are getting paid very, like a, a large variety of compensations. And that can be for a myriad of reasons, their experience, their skill set, etc. But when you start to go public and you start to say, okay, a project manager is making, 
you know, 45 to 50, and you have a project manager that's making 38, you know that that's a that that's going to be the next email that comes into your inbox is why is my pay not aligned to <laughs> to the band of the role. So there's a lot, I would say, at least a minimum of a three month, if not longer, pre-work or pre-preparation to even be ready for pay transparency, because it's really, you're utilizing that time to get your own internal bands right, to align to what's going to be externally, so that you don't have everybody and their coworker knocking on HR's door saying, hey, why am I, why is there such a large pay discrepancy? Mm-hmm. Now... With that, again, depending on how bad it is, the discrepancies, no, we don't have an extra million, two million to, you know, maybe rectify everything today. However, there should be a plan in place that over the next two, three, four years, however long it needs to be, to say that we are going to bring everybody in line to the compensation bans. But until you've done your audit, until you have your comms down, until you have a rollout of what this is going to look like, I would never advise anyone to just go ban. Here's our payment, uh, our compensation <laughs> ban. It would be, you know, hell on earth if that were to take place. And so always know that you've got to kind of clean up first inside internally before even getting to the full pay transparency kind of perspective. And then on that last point, I'll say, Again, you can go, at the minimum visibility is at least sharing what those bands are on job boards, on your job postings, but going further than that and, you know, whether it's how many job bands compensation internally your team can see to knowing everyone's salary, those are different levels and need a lot of thought and consideration to go to those levels. So I would say transparency is good, it's important, but be very mindful of how quickly and how fast you show transparency to ensure that it aligns internally and externally to, of course, legislation, but also to the culture of your workplace as well. Mm. That's good. So the thing I was thinking of, and you mentioned that, you know, this is kind of the, the far end of the spectrum, but my wife works for the state and all state positions, not necessarily, well, maybe even the people, but certainly the positions are listed publicly and you can go on the website, you can see what mm-hmm. they all pay. And I think the federal government may be similar, but so it was interesting here. You say it's kind of going all the way to the end, um, yeah. but, but I think putting <laughs> it in the job descriptions, like you mentioned, makes a lot of sense. Yeah, absolutely. And to the second point of, you know, how does this tie into DEI Mm -hmm. is it comes right back down to that equity piece. So again, if we're doing, if I'm doing the same job as a male counterpart, but yet my pay is $10,000 lower, why is that? Where's, that's inequitable. We're doing the exact same thing. You know, we have the exact same responsibilities, goals, accountability, all the same impact results that we need to achieve, but yet my pay is, you know, incredibly, you know, disp- disparaging to my my male colleague. So it's things like that, like that's where that by being transparent, that's just inserting that equi- equitability because it's showing that, okay, I can't request more money if I don't know, at least at a minimum, what this role is supposed to pay. All I know is the salary that I'm getting. And so by me now having that knowledge, then I can then say, hey, I want to move up to the, you know, 50,000 mark or whatever the middle of the middle of the band is. Again, that all comes back down to the compensation philosophy. But at least now I have the knowledge to say, I want it. Why am I not getting earning the same? And if it's due to education, experience, et cetera, et cetera, then how am I getting the learning opportunities to make that gap smaller and smaller for me to then increase my earnings? and make that a possibility. And so that's where you really see equity come to life in a really big way, because without that transparency piece, we can't really begin to provide the tools and opportunities to provide that that equality we're looking for. Mm. It, it's such a big, big adjustment and change for most companies, right? Like the, the pay transparency piece. Now, what have you seen in, in maybe in your travels, Alicia, that you know, what are companies doing 
doing well? Well, how are they making this part of their culture? And what are they doing to make it part of their just their day to day? And and what, what do you see that they're putting into practice that is saying, hey, you know, this company, you know, ABC company is doing it well. What have you noticed maybe the and some tips that you've seen mm-hmm. in your travels? Yeah. Number one is they communicate very fervently with their employees. So mm-hmm. from when even prior to, or even when there was rumblings around pay transparency, leadership connected very early on with myself and any other key members of the leadership team to say, what are we going to do? What is this going to look like? How are, how are we going to manage this new legislation change? And so it really began a discussion and with us kind of getting ahead of the curve of like, what are we going to do? How are we going to make this come to life? From there, it led to the internal compensation audit, where we looked at everybody in the similar job families and job levels to see what the discrepancy was. And then communicating to the employees to say, hey, we know this is what's coming down the pipeline. We know this is something you care about because it's your pay. We care about it too. This is what we are now doing internally in order to get ready for pay transparency in X amount of months. And so they created a plan from the audit to to the communications to actually creating a pay transparency program to get their team ready for what was to come. There were HR office hours to talk about pay transparency. There was town halls. Because again, when people think pay transparency, it's like, oh, well, I'm going to know what everybody earns. Again, that's not always the case. So it's really like for us, this is what we are doing as pay transparency and what this means for you and all the rest of your employees, your teams and your staff. So they were very communicative. They were very clear and they created a framework that allowed employees to feel safe, but also safe enough to ask questions and to want to learn more about how compensation is formed. And so Another once that kind of phase one is kind of done, when pay transparency was was mandated, it was then having a town hall again to say, you're you're not going to hear about the bans on some job board. You're going to hear it here first. Mm -hmm. So these are all of our job families, the levels, these are the salary bans, and et cetera, et cetera. And what was a key thing is, of course, when anyone sees a salary ban, everybody wants the top of the ban. But that's not always the case, right? It comes down to how are we, how are your skills aligning to this role, your experiences, you know, the impact of this role, et cetera, et cetera. So they really had to at the same time, reframe and recalibrate their job levels, their job families, and the competencies needed for those positions to ensure that if someone says, hey, like, why am I on this level of the band and not this level? They could say, well, because in your last review, you scored a three and not a four, as an example, because of ABC. But a lot of organizations don't take that much of due diligence and time in their performance management systems, in their goal setting frameworks, in their comms, et cetera, to then tie it directly to that comp frame work. It's in all alignment, it really should be. And so it took a lot of work, a lot of meetings, but when you do the work, you really do reap the benefits of it. Because when you have a, a proper pay transparency philosophy, your your teams trust you. They know why they're getting paid compensation the way that they are. They know how to get more money if that's something that they want to do or move their career up. So these conversations no longer become a, why am I not getting more money? It's how can I further myself and develop myself to to be a better employee, therefore I'll automatically earn more money because I'm getting promoted, I'm doing X, Y, Z job, et cetera, et cetera. But we didn't think about all those pieces in the beginning and how they all interconnect. But when you do, the conversation and the narrative becomes so much more clear and so much more powerful. Oh, that's mm-hmm. great. I, I was just going to say, we're going to flip in maybe into the fun questions. Not that all these questions yeah. are fun, Alicia, but uh, <laughs> yeah. we do have some separate fun questions for you to wrap up here. But you know, how did you get into your current role and position in the first place? 
Yeah. So when I, it's funny, I, when I get asked this question, it's like, how did you get started in HR? When I was going to school, I actually graduated with uh, a major in accounting. My goal was never to be in HR. <laughs> yeah, there you, you go. Yeah. That's cool. <laughs> and yeah. yeah, and it's funny. I didn't love accounting, but I knew that, okay, when you think about job security and the opportunities, you you really yeah. can't go wrong when it comes to numbers. And uh, it was just after we were still in the, in the recession of the 2008 recession. And I went to uh, a recruitment agency to say, hey, like, you know, I'm looking for a job in accounting. I have a minor in marketing. Is there something I can kind of do to, you know, just get some part-time work or, or something? And they had said, well, actually, one of our recruiters is going on that leave and we think you'd be a great fit. You're so personable. You, you, you have great communication skills. Do you want to be a recruiter? And so I was like, well, you know, it's a job. So... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's do it and let's see where this goes. If I didn't like it, I could always quit. So I started, that's how I got my foot in the door. I started off as a recruiter and it was government recruitment, you know, to say the least. And that's, a, you know, a very different beast um, in terms of just normal kind of corporate recruiting because there's RFPs and different assessment processes and things like that. And, you know, my curiosity led me from one thing to another thing. I then went in-house recruitment with a mix of HR and I realized, you know, HR is where I wanted to be because we spend like at least back in the day, eight to 10 hours in the, in the office. You know, we mm -hmm. spend so much of our time in a place we should hopefully enjoy and at least find some type of, you know, satisfaction. And I realized more and more there's just people who absolutely hated their jobs, hated, you know, the, the work that they were doing. And I was like, well, why is that? And I realized so much of the experiences we create in the workplace start with HR, but HR has such an influence on so many other facets of the business. And so I went full time into HR um, and then just moved around to different organizations going higher and higher. And until I started Culture Shift, where I really just needed an outlet to do HR the way I envisioned it to do it. And I still worked corporate up until my last opportunity until I went full time. And now I have a team of six and it, you know, you know, if you were to tell me back then like this is what you would be doing and all the all the things I'd be leading and even from the awards I hear that four time award it's like oh my god like who is this person I'd be like oh you're funny that's a great joke at April Fool's Day or something but no when you follow your passion and you really follow what drives you what motivates you what lights you up amazing things happen and mm. has it always been easy oh my god easy is not in my vocabulary but it <laughs> <laughs> It's when you're determined to do something, it's, you know, those obstacles, you know, you see them a little bit differently. And sure. so from the people I've met to clients I've worked with, continue to work with to this day, the opportunities that I get every day, it reminds me that I'm living in, and working in my purpose. It, it gives a different insight to what I do and to the things that I'm building. And, you know, I think to anyone that's listening that wants to make that career change or that pivot into something else, do it. You know, ask questions, meet people, get out there, but make that change sooner than later because you don't know what you're missing when you say no to yourself. Mm -hmm. So coming in from the outside, as as we both have now acknowledged, a former accounting people, what were some <laughs> misconceptions you had about HR when you were just coming in that maybe made you a little reluctant, although it sounds like you kind of jumped <laughs> in with both feet. But <laughs> what were some misconceptions um, or what are some you run into today yeah. that you find people have? Um, oh yeah, absolutely. I think in the beginning it was like HR is just a paper pushing <laughs> department, right? Like, okay, you just hire people and Hiring and firing. Those are the main two things we are known for. Um, and definitely when I started in this industry 12 years ago, there was nothing as like strategic HR and nothing like HR data and analytics. Like that was not a part of the career frameworks, you know, in university and even learning about HR. Um, 
And so I think that's a, mis- a big misconception today. And I mean, we've done, we, I mean, the pandemic, let's be honest, really did spotlight HR in, in, in mm. a massive way because, yeah. you know, from dealing with all of that to working from home to the culture initiatives, like HR has really been a key pillar in getting workplaces through the pandemic and even post pandemic with culture and creating a really engaged workforce. But I would say today, the misconception is that HR can only do one thing. Your HR people have incredible and a vast amount of skills set, insight, data, talents that you probably haven't even tapped into yet. So I would say, you know, meet with your HR leaders. I meet with my leaders once a week to talk about HR and what's going on and the work I'm doing and then connect the rest of the organization at least on a monthly basis. So talk to your people, work with HR as a partner. They are there to make sure that the business is successful based on the tools and the and the makeup of your, of your workforce. You know, don't sleep on HR. They are a powerful tool in your toolbox. They can help you think strategically, look at the numbers, look at key data, what's working and what's not, and really help to be a part, be a part of that larger strategic plan. So do not sleep on HR. That's awesome. Alicia, what is the most recent, it doesn't have to be HR, but it could be just a business related, you know, book or podcast besides the Inspired Insights podcast, of course, that you would recommend, that you'd recommend to others. <laughs> oh, this is, this is a good one because it's so hard. I always have at least two to three books on, on, on the yeah. go. Oh shoot. I'm going to get the name wrong. Okay. So there's this book and I know I don't have the name right, but it's 101 essays to change the way you think about life or to change something, something. I'll have to get the name. I was floored with this. It's an author that writes short essays about every aspect of life from career to finding your purpose, to relationships, to making mistakes, to engaging with people. And a lot of times we go through life thinking we're the only ones or we're only going through the, you know, the circumstances we're going through. And this book taught me that is not the case. There are people Mm. that go through similar types of circumstances and the way that you are feeling is you are not alone in that feeling. And it made me feel like one, you know, don't sweat the small stuff because it's always small and in relation to other things that are happening. But two, that you don't have to be alone in your feelings if you don't want to be. There's always a way to get support, to connect, to feel seen if you take those steps. And so I love that book. I think that's going to be part of my yellow rotation just as as a reminder. And yeah, I would say that that would be my my number one pick. That's awesome. Yeah. So... The last question we have for you, we throw out to everybody, and it's always great to hear the answers we get here. If the words human resources, which are abbreviated HR, had to be replaced with two other words that start with the letters H and R, but still had the same connotation, what two words would you pick? What H and R word would you pick? That is so hard. That's really (laughs) hard. And I can't use the word human, and I can't use the word resources. Well, we'll let you, but (laughs) it's always better if we get two (laughs) unique ones. I feel the age would be helping mm, and then good. the R mm-hmm. would be, you know, this, this is so, so much of the English language I know. R <laughs> being, oh gosh, I don't know. I'm blanking. <laughs> but, <laughs> helping. I could help I don't know what to do for R. Yeah. I'm sorry. We'll, I, we'll, my we'll go with resources. resources. We'll go with helping okay, resources. Okay, helping resources. <laughs> All right. I'd love All to right. hear what others have come up with because that is a, that's a stumper. We were just talking about that with another guest. So I think, did we confirm that they're out there, Brian? If you yeah, if, to the truepay.com. We, we did do a LinkedIn post with some of the unique answers we've gotten in the past. So yeah, 
healthy relationships was one i think Ooh, yeah there's some there's some really there are a few it's it is a stumper for sure alicia so yeah <laughs> we yes. say the tough one for the last <laughs> yeah you gotta, gotta <laughs> add that, that to the uh, the website brian on the inspired yes. insights page yes that'd be great if we could add that we will do that absolutely well, thank you, Alicia, for joining us today. And thank you to everyone who listened or watched the discussion today. We hope that you'll be back again. If you have any suggestions for topics or guests, or if you'd like to be a guest yourself, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach us at inspiredinsights at truepay.com.